I am absolutely honored to have Mr. Robert Breedlove here with me. I always refer to as Robert as my Bitcoin Aristotle. And how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we are here today because, as I mentioned, you are my Bitcoin Aristotle. You are an entrepreneur, a writer, a philosopher. You're an advocate of cryptocurrencies. You're very famous in the cryptosphere. And uh, I've been watching a lot of your content. I've read your book and everything else. So Mr. Breedlove is the founder of Parallax Digital. He also has a podcast called What is Money? Please subscribe. All the links are below and subscribe to his channel and read all of his materials. I mean, once you start going down the Breedlove rabbit hole, you can never get back out. At least that's the case <laughs> with me. They are fascinating. And uh, I find at least the way Robert thinks and the way I think are very similar. And we're going to prove that. I'm not going to do something I've never done before, but we're going to do some modeling live in a video together. And he's never seen this model. So we'll see where that takes us. So uh, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. We're going to delve into the battle between kind of mathematics, which is my background, macro, my background, and gravity, where it's going to take us and what we can model out and how we believe Bitcoin can go to astronomically high heights. So with that, I'm going to ask you your first question, and I hope it's okay to call you Robert. Of course. Awesome. So as a quick intro to my audience, could you tell us how you fell into the Bitcoin rabbit hole? Sure. I will keep it brief. Um, my background is in accounting and finance, a master's degree in accounting and finance. Uh, straight out of school, I was involved with an accounting firm, so we, we focused on tax strategy for high net worth individuals and investment partnerships. So I really got to see how the game was played hmm. um, at a deep level as far as preserving and uh, preserving capital and optimizing income. I quickly decided that uh, that linear career path was not for me. I'm much more entrepreneurial. So I shifted gears and became a tech focused CFO for most of my career. And it was in that process, you know, I had heard about Bitcoin in 2014, but like many people, I just wrote it off. I think my general conception was that Bitcoin sounded like version one of what would later become something meaningful, you know, like version 50. Mm. I hadn't, I just hadn't done the deep dive. Um, I always kick myself about that too, because I was arguing about the inevitability of digital currency, but I hadn't looked into Bitcoin deep enough to really grok it, so to speak. Um, so fast forward to 2016, I had launched my own business, uh, which was pretty much just kind of like a CFO consulting um, business. But I had also been studying crypto throughout. I was studying technology businesses more generally. But um, when I stumbled across the work of Nick Zabo, who mm -hmm. had written about smart contracts in the late 90s, yeah. That was my light bulb moment, was that the entire finance industry is this intermediate layer between buyers and sellers. It makes up, you know, I forget the numbers now, but I, I think it's north of 20% of US GDP. And this entire industry was set to be devoured. Well, we'll say partially devoured, at least by this up and coming technology. Um, and so that was my light bulb moment, is that a lot of the the 
function that finance was providing was going to be eaten by software. And that's when I started, which was a, which funny enough was Ethereum's marketing campaign that really got me into that. Because when I saw yeah. Ethereum advertising smart contracts, I'm like, what the hell is a smart contract? I started doing my homework. I land on Zabo. I'm like, okay, this is a big deal. I'm going to start investing in kind of the top market cap weighted crypto assets. And then like where my money went, my mind followed essentially. And so while studying the space, I became enamored with Austrian economics. I felt like I had discovered mathematics. Um, Even though know, you got a finance background. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible because yeah. you don't get one stitch of education about Austrian economics in the Keynesian curriculum that we all come through. Yep. Um, but it's, it's so, you know, that's a whole rabbit hole in and unto itself. But when I say it's like discovering mathematics, I mean that because it's based on axiomatic presuppositions, whereas Keynesian economics is much more empirical and totally detached from that, that a priori, uh, epistemology. So through my study of crypto assets and Austrian economics, I had already had, I, I forgot to mention this, but I had background knowledge about central banking. So I knew the problems there. I didn't realize Bitcoin plugged the, the gap and Austrian economics was my own, the gap in my own understanding. So once I had that piece in place, everything crystallized. And I realized that Bitcoin was uh, a disruptor, frankly, to gold and central banking. Um, my, my company at the time too, we, I went from consulting into kind of hedge fund uh, operations and we were running a multi-strategy crypto asset fund for a while, but as my investment thesis became more narrowly focused on Bitcoin, my portfolio construction reflected that. And then finally, uh, in 2020, which was transformational for a lot of people, I decided that trying to outperform the best performing asset in human history was uh, really hard in a lot of ways. Mm. We're, Bitcoin was our benchmark, frankly. And... Uh, as a result of really, there's this quote, I've mentioned it before, but I'll say it again, that I heard this quote from HG Wells that civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And uh, also I'll credit to my interactions with Sailor. He has a, he's a passion for education as well. I just decided I wanted to point myself into this asset class completely as in, you know, reading, writing, talking about it instead of trying to outperform it, which just seems crazy. You know, you can just hold it and um, do pretty damn well. <laughs> well what, were you, what were you thinking in uh, end of March, April 2020, when you saw the money printing begin? Were you there like saying, are you kidding me? Because when, when, when I saw that happening, I've been deep into Bitcoin since 2017, a year after you. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by its basic minimal supply. Mm -hmm. And the fact it was deflationary and I've been modeling deflationary Bitcoin for the longest time. And I said, wow, this, this thing's going to pop one day, mm -hmm. you know, once people yeah. catch on. And I didn't really believe it had such a future up until I saw the crazy money printing happening in April right. 2020. So what were you doing at that time? Were you sitting in a chair saying, I can't believe uh, this? Or <laughs> what no, was it? A, a couple of things. So first of all, I have a, a young daughter. And so when that, the pandemic started to really take hold, or at least what we thought at the time was this pandemic, it seemed like the world was potentially on the edge of something really dark. 
Yeah. So I was actually initially very shaken in my Bitcoin thesis, not because I was worried about Bitcoin at all, but I thought the world was literally about to just come unglued. So I thought Bitcoin was just going to um, potentially go under the back burner. Why, you know, this pandemic worked its way through the world. But as soon as, you know, after a few weeks and we started to see some data, say, okay, this thing is just a flu, basically, yeah. you know, according to the data. And I'm seeing the expansionary response. I'm like, oh my God, this is the big one, right? And then that's when I started putting out some analysis um, because Bitcoin is accorded to these four-year halving cycles. Its price tends to peak roughly 510 days on average after each halving. And I started to chart out the next anticipated peak, which is actually right around now, it's quarter four, 2021. And mapping that onto the expected inflationary pressures from US dollar production, which is also right around now, it takes about 18 months for these things to wash through the system. Um, that's when I had to revisit my original price projection for this cycle and, uh, and augment it upwards. And yeah, it's, it's for someone who has been barking up this tree for a long time, I've been, you know, saying that state money doesn't work and it, it inevitably collapses and it collapses catastrophically. Typically that's what hyperinflation is. This entire event has still seemed sudden to me. It's amazing how quickly things have moved. Yeah. Um, so I can only imagine what other people that, that don't look deeply into this are feeling. Well, it's funny because I was there, I spent a lot of my time, all of 2020, anybody who met me, I said, oh no, he's going to start talking about Bitcoin again. Yeah, and all yeah. I want to do is get my friends and family. I said, buy one per child, just, and then put it away. Yeah. Just forget about it. You know, wait 10 years. That was my whole kind of pitch. And I was very unsuccessful. So I put a video together, but when I saw April, 2020 happening after March and the beginning mm -hmm. of lockdowns, and I saw the money printing and I was very familiar with the halving cycle, I said, this is a perfect storm. Yes. And that's when I, I anticipated about 18 months before that, some type of financial crisis, I believe in seven mm -hmm. to nine year cycles. Mm -hmm. And we were like in 10 years of expansion. I said, mm -hmm. something's got to give here. I was expecting yeah. something completely different, mm -hmm. but I was in a heavy cash position when it did hit. So I was fortunate to be able to get into everything that was a complete fire sale. I remember I was actually physically doing a job and uh, locked my office door and I was just buying call options and selling quotes <laughs> like crazy. It was just a very weird time. But uh, anyway, so that, that's, that's awesome. So congratulations on your daughter. That's super exciting. And that brings Thanks me so to tr triggers. Another question in my mind is how would you explain Bitcoin to a 10 year old or Charlie Munger in 160 <laughs> characters or less? That is a great question. Um, I think maybe the simplest way to describe, I don't know if this is the simplest actually, but I think it's the most poignant at least, is that it's incorruptible money, right? Throughout all of human history, we have been creating these social institutions or these symbolic canopies under which we organize ourselves, whether this is a religion, a nation state, human rights, any... This, this gets to Yuval Harari's um, book, Sapiens, where he talks about imagined orders, right? This is the distinct evolutionary advantage that humans have over other, all other animals, that we can organize ourselves flexibly in large numbers. And it's done through this ability to, to tell and believe stories. 
the problem has been, you know, with every great civilization is that we end up corrupting the money. Those that get into a position of power forcefully monopolize the money. They then debase it to their own benefit until the trust is diluted sufficiently within civilization that it collapses. And this is very obvious if you consider what's going on in Venezuela today. Like people are like, what do you mean trust and money? What's the relationship? It's like when you hyperinflate the currency, it loses all meaning, right? That the money loses its ability to enable social cohesion. So in Venezuela today, there's cash clogging, you know, the gutters in the streets and people are starving and people are eating cats and dogs. Like it's very barbaric. So there's this direct correlation between the integrity of the money supply and the integrity of a civilization. You cannot have one without the other. And another way to think about this is, is property rights, right? But, you know, money is the most important property, right? And if you debase that, then you're debasing the foundation of civilization. It's like yeah. people cannot trade and cooperate at scale. Therefore, they're forced into these barbaric means of survival. The problem across all human history is that we, whoever gets in power gives into the temptation to debase and corrupt the money supply, which implodes the civilization. The fall of the Roman Empire going all the way yes. back. Yeah. And I realize now that I'm not at all giving you a good, simple Charlie Munger or 10-year-old <laughs> answer. But I think that's the way you have to think about it is you need, you know, in the same way we have standard weights and measurements for every other unit, right? The kilogram, um, the meter. If these things fluctuated arbitrarily, like depending on what jurisdiction you're operating in, like if the king gets to say the meter is longer or shorter, how can we ever have coordination at scale? We could never have a global division of labor. Planes would fall out of the sky. Exactly. Exactly. So the whole machinery of global commerce is premised on immutable standards. Yeah. But the one place we've never had an immutable standard is money. So maybe that's the short, simple answer is you could think of Bitcoin as the metric system of money, something like that. Yeah, I like to use the word trustless as well. I did an interview with this group that helps people that were human trafficked to give them hope. And I always say Bitcoin is hope, usual stuff, but how people who've been betrayed in the worst possible form, they need something trustless that they can trust, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. And that's that's kind of how I position. I like that word kind of a, it's a, it's a trustless form of money yeah, and and people get confused by that because people think trust is a good thing we need trust but um this actually gets back to nick zabo's work where he talks about money as an instrument of trust minimized exchange Hmm. right if you and i if we don't know each other i don't know your reputation or your background we can still do business together if i transfer you bitcoin or transfer you gold that's a trust minimized means of interoperating. You don't need to know me or my reputation or my background if I've provided you money. Um, The problem with fiat currency, central banking in general, is that you're always forced to trust the issuer, right? We need to trust that they won't debase the money. They won't enforce capital controls. They won't deauthorize the money. Like we've seen the 500 rupee banknote in India just turned off overnight. I mean, this is not, it's not trust minimized. So therefore, it doesn't work as money. And that's why fiat currency always collapses. You've triggered another question in my mind and it ties back to what you're talking about. And, and it's something that I, I have a hard time understanding is why are, and it 
ties into exactly what we're talking about. Why are non-believers non-believers, like the, the people out there that are just violently opposed to Bitcoin, even though they now kind of realize how important it is? Mm-hmm. But is that a personality flaw or is it just stubbornness or is it just people want to hold on to whatever scruples they believe they have? Yeah, this is a big question. Um, I posed something similar to Sailor actually, and he had a great response that a profound idea can only propagate so quickly through the human mind effectively or collective human mind. I think that that really hits the nail on the head. Um, I would take it a step further and say that it's almost as if we've only had approximations of money up until the invention of Bitcoin. And I could explain this through uh, the Austrian lens. That, so if we look at gold, for instance, has a $10 trillion market cap. Roughly $2 trillion of that market cap is the result of demand for gold as an industrial metal, right? It's used in electronics, dentistry, et cetera. The other $8 trillion of its market cap is reservation demand for its use as money. So the market cap of any asset is split between its utility value or industrial value and its marketability or exchange value or monetary value. Every, every asset, first of all, exhibits some monetary premium, typically. Like if someone's holding it, not to use it, but anticipation of trading it for something else, that would be monetary premium. Gold is just the asset that had the greatest monetary premium historically. That's why it was money. Bitcoin is the first monetary technology that is pure monetary premium, right? It has no industrial use whatsoever. So it's, it's, the, it's like the invention of money in a lot of ways. Like we thought gold was money and gold has been money, but it was like, you know, today, again, it's 80% money. It's 80% money, 20% industrial metal. So I think that maybe we are a bit more bullish on our own civilization. Like we think we're really modern and sophisticated and civilized, but I think we've just now discovered this incorruptible base layer that lets us scaffold ourselves to what civilization really can be, right? We're getting toward closer toward the laissez-faire libertarian view of the world, that if we have less coercion, we have more wealth creation. Um, But that just has not been possible historically because of the incentives related to money. You know, gold was a rough analog approximation of this, but we figured out a way to corrupt that too, right? We figured a way to corner the market on gold. We figured a way to uh, manipulate it, manipulate it to sever mass to sever the population's access to gold, right? We, we kind of impose this, well, currency is introduced as a convenience mechanism for gold initially to make it more portable. But then again, the issuer or the custodian of the gold, which is today the central bank, has every incentive to hoard that gold and sever uh, access to it for everyone else. So it's, you know, how can I put it in a nutshell? Human beings are, I'll use the word sinful, you could say self-interested as well. And we need these protocols that protect the collective interest from individuals establishing a predator and prey relationship, right? If you could get on the other side of a central bank and become a central bank shareholder, you have every incentive to do that because you now have a perpetual profit. Um, and we needed to have some 
pure money that couldn't be corrupted to prevent this predator prey dynamic from emerging within our own species so that we can then focus all of our efforts towards productive cooperation. Well, this, ta this takes me directly into another direction. We're going a little bit off the reservation here. <laughs> I hope that's okay. But with regards to philosophy and macro, how do you view how the central banks are operating today? You mentioned central banks through CBDC adoption. To me, it seems like there's some type of arms race to have some type of tyrannical control over the populace as quickly as possible. Started with China, it's going to be followed by everybody else. But first of all, do you believe it is like that type of digital tyranny arms race? And second of all, do you think it's going to impact Bitcoin's decentralization and massive adoption that's going on right now? Well, there's no question that the arms race to launch a CBDC is a direct response to the emergence of Bitcoin. I mean, that that's painfully obvious. There was no talk of a CBDC before Bitcoin, clearly. Um, I think it is just the effort of central banks to upgrade the implementation of fiat currency in a way that gives them more control, frankly. Um, so fiat currency itself is tyrannical. It's just this, this effort to have a CBDC would just give central banks more transparency over, uh, frankly, their, how do we say this? I would say over citizens, but in the sense of fiat currency, you're not technically a citizen. You're more like a serf yeah. because you're forced to use a certain money. They're able to depreciate it at will. All of the costs of that depreciation are forcefully externalized onto you. So uh, another way to think about this, this is a key point. If your tax rate, if your effective tax rate as a citizen, quote unquote, if it's 100%, you're not a citizen, you're a slave, right? All the fruits of your labor go to the authority, whatever the authority is. If your tax rate is 0%, you are a self-sovereign human. You're completely free of coercion, right? Anywhere you are on that continuum, you're somewhere between self-sovereign citizen and slave. And inflation is just taxation, right? So Inflation has been this invisible way to toggle you closer to slavery uh, and away from self-sovereign citizenry. And I think the CBDC would just be the most direct means of ever accomplishing that. And it gets a little more dystopian when you look at what they're doing in China, that they're tying this whole thing together with a social credit scoring system, putting it on a mobile app, controlling what you can buy, when you can buy it. If you say the wrong things, they'll turn off your money for certain types of purchases. Maybe they'll turn off travel. Yeah, train and plane. Um, they block you from going on those if you... That's right. It's they'll a... block your internet access. They'll block your media access. They do public shaming on billboards. Wow. So if you don't say the right thing, then they'll shame you on a billboard. And if you're a good peon for the state, then maybe they'll glorify you on a billboard. So this whole thing gets very... Orwellian. Orwellian. And, <laughs> and you know, the, the problem here is that and this, I think this is the big transformation in consciousness, actually, is that the state views people as means rather than ends in themselves. And we know that any good relationship you've ever had in life, like it's reciprocal, right? If you treat someone as means, they're going to immediately uh, have a, a distinct negative response to you treating them that way. If you say you're just this or you're just that, and you don't treat them as a 
uh, a self-directed, auto-poetic individual, right? And understand that we have choice and consciousness, then that relationship is going to deteriorate very quickly. Well, that is exactly what the state does. The state treats all human beings as a means to an end, the end, their end being taxation. That is both so, fascinating and alarming. And I know when people see this, they're going to be like, their whole perspective will shift as to where they are on that exact continuum as you talk, talk about it. It's kind exactly. of crazy. So let's uh, switch gears. Got a lot, of, a lot of material. Do you believe, uh, we'll get off the CBDC stuff for a second. Do you believe Bitcoin has any potential rival? Um, I believe in free market competition, but based on my study of monetary evolution historically, Bitcoin has perfected all of the properties of money that free market action has selected for. So by all means, go and launch a competitor, do whatever you want. You know, I think there should be a free market in money, free market in banking. Um, but I, I don't see a way, I don't believe that Satoshi left any design space for Bitcoin to be disrupted. And I've talked about this a lot on a lot of shows. So I'll just mention it without going into it unless you want to, but there's five things money should be doing. There's five affordances money provides free market actors, divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. Bitcoin essentially perfects all of these properties. So, and in the event that it did not, for whatever reason, Bitcoin's open source code. So it can adopt feature set from competitors. Yeah. So the fact that Bitcoin has a huge established network effect, uh, very significant first mover advantage in a multi-sided marketplace, I don't see how it could be disrupted. So if, if related to that, I know you said it's perfection, there's no room for improvement, but if there's one thing you could improve on Bitcoin, what would it be? Um, well, so here's one thing. So the divisibility aspect of Bitcoin, right now each Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million subunits. There could come a time where that was not sufficient. Yeah. Right? If, Bit if Bitcoin's eaten all the money in the world, maybe one sat is not divisible enough for daily commerce, right? Maybe a loaf of bread is half a sat, something like yeah. that. I, I spoke about something a couple of weeks ago. I talked about the concept of a sat cent. I don't know yeah. if it's ever going to pick up, but like one hundredth of a sat could yes, yes, is yes. very easily configurable on the platform. Exactly. Yes. So that's one property of money that Bitcoin technically hasn't perfected, but it speaks to the, the versatility of its open source code that it can just soft fork to have additional divisibility. So I guess that would be one thing I'd point to. If I could change one thing about Bitcoin, I don't know if it's really about Bitcoin. I would like to change people's understanding of money. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, Are you one of those believers that believes that cryptocurrency should not be called currencies? as a quasi-medium of exchange versus store of value? Where do you lie on that continuum? Yeah, so it depends on your definition of currency. There's sort of two working definitions that I've encountered. One is which money is circulating most widely. And two is what money is authorized by government to be circulating widely. So in the second sense of currency, I think Bitcoin kind of obliterates that concept. You know, this is the separation of money and state, if you will. This is a, 
a non-state global digital asset. So it really, it obliterates the concept of government controlled currency. It obliterates the concept of monetary policy um, because these things become a product of free market selection, not a product of imposition itself. Mm -hmm. But if you're using the first definition of currency as in what money circulates most widely, I do think Bitcoin is destined to become that. That's awesome. So I've seen you on uh, the Kitco Gold channel at least once or twice, I think. Mm -hmm. And I know you know central banks and I know you know history. I know you know gold. So I'm, I'm kind of, I wouldn't say I'm a student of history, but I'm fascinated by certain things like collapse of civilization and world mm -hmm. wars and what causes them to make sure they're not repeated. But uh, I also lived through the crisis of the 70s. I remember as a child, with my father, we'd have to queue up at a gas station for hours and hours and yeah. prices were going through the roof. So I was very young, but I remember it distinctly like it was yesterday. So if you uh, look back at the crisis of the 70s and tying in the report from Fidelity about the parallels between Bitcoin today versus gold in the 70s mm -hmm. and how oil and gold during the 70s it was a very stagflationary period. I believe we are six to 12 months away from stagflation here ourselves, mm -hmm. but that's a separate issue. Yeah. Um, do you believe we could be in that period where, just like the 70s, gold or the new gold, digital gold, i.e. Bitcoin, will massively outshine bonds and equities? I absolutely think Bitcoin is going to continue to be the best performing asset um, for the next 15 years, the same as it has been for the past 13 um, you know, the, the issue of you queuing up for gas with your father, that's all a consequence of government intervention in the marketplace. Like you'll never hear that story in mainstream media, but all of these consequences are well interpreted through the Austrian school, right? There's a direct a priori consequence to government intervention in the marketplace. And it's typically surpluses or shortages, depending if it's price ceilings or price floors. So we're seeing a lot of intervention from the market right now, and we're just starting to see the consequences of it, right? We're hearing that, uh, and this is a funny narrative, that the supply chain disruptions oh, yeah. are the cause for the transient inflation, right? But what is actually true is that government intervention in the market for money, so the printing of money, further inter intervention in uh, the regulatory gatekeeping in supply chains is creating further disruption. So, yeah, I think we're going to see really bad outcomes in all markets. And the closer the market is to the state, the worse it will be in terms of quality being deprecated and price being increased. So healthcare is a great example, right? In the U.S., very close to the state. The cost has been exploding for a decade. It's going to explode even more, but the quality keeps declining because of all of the, the government intervention, frankly. And there's a great chart on this in a piece that I wrote where it shows the ratio of, of administrators to healthcare providers in oh, healthcare. Yeah. I think I've seen something like that. I yeah. think in the 70s, it was around eight to one, maybe say 10 to one administrators to doctors, right? Which sounds like a lot. You're like, okay, healthcare, it's like you're, you go to see the doctor. How many billing and AR clerks do you need behind the doctor? Today, it's like 1800 to one. Healthcare is not even healthcare anymore. It's sick care, right? They're, they're yeah. 
completely government intervention has completely destroyed the industry essentially and everyone is suffering the consequences of that so i think as government intervention and coercion escalates people are naturally going to demand coercion resistant money and marketplaces and i think bitcoin bitcoin's the only coercion resistant money i think those economies that start to standardize themselves to bitcoin will outperform those that do not and we're going to have this kind of darwinian shift away from government intervention away from markets where governments are intervening towards those um or less intervention is possible yeah it's funny because i see i see the world i always said the future will be completely tokenized and put on the blockchain so it's immutable and verifiable mm -hmm. just like just like bitcoin and there was a move to that in the news today with the associated press creating media on the blockchain so it yeah. is verifiable and get away from all the fake news kind of word of the past but back to back to my original question though in terms of the 1970s gold rush gold spike you mm -hmm. believe do you believe if you saw the fidelity report that there is parallels in the charts because they do look uncannily similar. Mm -hmm. I think we are in a digital gold rush until the year 2035. Um, that is the year by which 99% of all the Bitcoin will have been mined. Yep. Uh, we're at a point now where there's such a significant information asymmetry that people still think Bitcoin's a joke or they think it could fail or go to zero. Um, and it's a, you know, what is it? A $1.2 trillion asset today. Like yeah, it's two and a half percent adoption. Maximum. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I think Bitcoin is going to radically outperform everything. I do think gold will do well as, as well because it has a 5,000 year head start as hard money. Um, you know, central banks still actively acquire gold. Um, so yeah, I think in general, the state is very, uh, the state hurts markets. Hmm. Well, I ran, I, I ran a model on gold because um, a lot of the questions I always get is, should I sell my gold? Mm -hmm. And I go back to the last 11 years. So if you look at, you know, gold has fallen by minus 2%, minus 3%. Mm -hmm. But if you calculate it on a purchasing power basis, it's actually down about 41, 42%. So That's it's right. far more dramatic. And when you look at the macro backdrop that we have over the last 18 months, it is perfect for gold and it yep. continues to shrink. And that leads me to kind of my next thought. I want to bounce off you while we're on the topic of gold and digital gold, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Do you believe, you know, people always talk about whale manipulation and market manipulation and Bitcoin, like it's the end of the world, but Hey, have you seen other markets? <laughs> uranium copper gold silver yeah. these are all highly manipulated you know 100x the spot amount is paper yeah. um do you believe the whale manipulation will continue or that'll move more towards the jp morgans of the world now that we have more future etfs and things like that well, a couple that things concern? so one what you just said about gold i think the reason its price is suppressed is because of the derivatives market frankly yes. And there's a fundamental aspect here that when you are able to divorce in time, trade and settlement, right? If I can represent something to you without having to pay you or settle with you, I can play all kinds of games in between, right? We're back to finance being this intermediate layer between buyers and sellers. Gold, again, the, the 
technological shortcoming of gold is that it suffers in terms of portability. This is the reason, because gold is geopolitical prime money, we have built all of these institutions on top of it, is to try and create these layers of trust in an asset that's really hard to move over space and verify, right? To verify someone's gold holdings. So there, there's a great book on this called Gold Wars, uh, I think by the author Ferdinand Lips. And he goes through this whole history of, uh, what? oh, there's another website for this too. Gold Antitrust, GATA.org, Gold Antitrust Action Committee, maybe. But they go through this entire history of coordinated government action to suppress gold price. Um, and this gets back to something Alan Greenspan said a long time ago that a sound store of value must be illegalized or manipulated by central banks. Otherwise, fiat currency would be outcompeted. Hmm. So there are a lot. This is why I always tell people, like, if you don't understand the games being played in money, you are the game being played. Exactly. A hundred percent. And so this whole, again, back to governments kind of waging war against entrepreneurship and markets, like gold was the greatest, most important market in the world for 5,000 years. It still is, by the way, they've just limited access to the citizens, right? They don't want citizens transacting in gold because gold acts as a check on government. And this was a role that was filling historically where if a goal, if a government was irresponsible with their monetary policy, Gold would flow out of that country. So gold was a free market regulation mechanism on government itself. This is why they commandeered it. This is why they cornered the market on it. Um, in terms of Bitcoin, yeah, I think games will continue to be played. Uh, so long as a, there's a high concentration of wealth, people will play the game to their advantage as best that they can. The bright the silver lining, I guess you might say, is that as Bitcoin continues to monetize, it becomes more widely distributed. So there's less of an ability for whales to play these games. And the, the other benefit is that because Bitcoin unifies trade and settlement, that we it's very easy to settle with finality in Bitcoin anywhere in the world, 24 by seven, that it really closes the window for a lot of these uh, these asymmetries and games to be played against others. So it, it's, you can think about final settlement being like the ability to call someone's bluff. Yeah. It's really expensive to call someone's bluff in gold because gold's heavy and hard to move. But in Bitcoin, you can do it 24 by seven in near instant, right? Within the hour and at a very low cost. Yep. Excellent. So let's uh, switch gears for a second. And I know one of the things that really got my attention was uh, when you spoke of your $12.5 million price target through in 2031. And that was absolutely fascinating to me, so much so that I actually built a model to try replicate how you got to that number. Mm -hmm. And awesome. and we're gonna we're gonna play with that in a little while. But before we do, and that'll be <laughs> that'll be a first on YouTube, at least for me, modeling in real time with somebody I've chatting with through a Zoom, but it'll be cool. But if we talk about your target, that $12.5 million, I calculated that's a 229x from where we are today, which is about a 70% CAGR, compound annual growth rate, which is actually very reasonable. And Conservative people, for Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, the miracle of compounding, we don't need to go yeah. there. But uh, if before we jump into the model, 
what do you think will happen to the altcoin world? And the reason I'm mentioning this to you, because you triggered my thought on this when you mentioned you came into the rabbit hole through Ethereum and smart contracts. Right. So do you believe, you know, imagine Bitcoin dominance is 49.2% a day or something like that, give or take 0.1%. Do you believe it'll always be around 50% dominance? And that means if Bitcoin does go to $12.5 million, this alt market, if it does have 50% of the market cap, it'll be huge too. What's your take on that? Yeah, so where do I start? There With altcoins, I'll start here. Bitcoin is the only asset that has provably achieved decentralization. Now, there's a lot in that word, but decentralization, I think in its most simplistic form means that it is immune to the opinions of others or immune to politics, immune to intervention, right? No other altcoin has achieved that. All other altcoins are projects, right? There's some development team or institution or governing body that holds sway over the rule CEO. set. CEO. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. So there's the old saying, don't tell me what you think, just tell me what's in your portfolio. I, I hold 100% Bitcoin. So I actually am bearish on a risk-adjusted return, all altcoins in terms of Bitcoin for this very reason, that there hasn't been a market-proven use case for an altcoin. You could argue Ethereum was kind of like this ICO vending machine. Um, and they're all vulnerable to politics or opinion. So I don't think that the altcoin market will track Bitcoin. I think that there's going to be a reckoning. I don't know if it's sudden or gradual where most of these projects fail. Perhaps some of them succeed. Perhaps some of them find product market fit. Perhaps some of them achieve decentralization. I'm not saying that it's impossible, um, but I, I don't have a clear line of sight on how any of these projects do that. Whereas with Bitcoin, all it needs to do to succeed is exactly what it's been doing flawlessly for 13 years. It just needs to continue to exist. And it keeps appreciating in terms of dollars as less Bitcoin is produced, uh, being priced in, in an expansionary dollar, for instance. Yeah, well, that's so, inter interesting you say that because I, I get, the way I invest is I go after uh, dominant players in markets that have a large total addressable market. And you started this conversation talking about the middlemen and how 20% of US GDP mm -hmm. is controlled by the middlemen, mm -hmm. smart contracts like Ethereum, Solana, et cetera. They can disrupt that very quickly and easily. So from my perspective, I only focus on what I call SCP plays, so mm -hmm. smart contract platforms. And um, I do believe of the 12,000 alts that are out there, 95 to 99% will die over the next four to six years. That's a mm -hmm. given, but there'll be a lot more innovation coming along in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And what also blows me away is the pace of change of things in the space. You know, Ethereum is there because they were the first mover, but they have 20 other companies biting at their ankles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a, a smart contract platform that starts today will be finished in 12 months and it'll be faster, maybe more decentralized, maybe quicker settlement time, et cetera, than yeah. all the others. So it's just, it's, it's, to me, it's a very fascinating world, but I do agree with you. There will be a reckoning, but I do agree that this 50% ratio could play, especially when you look at the 400 trillion addressable market for DeFi, insurance, banking, asset management, exchanges, uh. that's all disruptable. 
I would really question how much of that market cap accretes to the token, though. I don't think it's a four hundred trillion dollar market cap for the token. Oh no, they just they just need one percent of that, and on a revenue on a per per year basis. Right, right. Okay, that's fine. So you're talking about more like four trillion, whereas Bitcoin is a a two hundred fifty trillion ish addressable market. So for me, on a on a risk adjusted basis, I'm looking at Bitcoin with no unsolved computer science problems, fully decentralized, nothing to do really other than continue to exist. And it's a 250 to 200, 250X upside on Bitcoin alone. Um, That's very appealing to me and hard when you, when you factor in the risk of everything we've just laid out, hard for me to to sell any Bitcoin to buy something else. Uh, And I would add too that Again, because only Bitcoin has achieved decentralization, it seems logical to me that should any of these projects find product market fit, it's very likely that that will be established on Bitcoin in higher order protocols like RSK and things like this. Because if you exactly. if you want something that's censorship resistant, which you would want in decentralized finance, you would want to build it on the most decentralized protocol. Exactly. That's why I, I, I actually st- spend a lot of time studying the layer twos on top of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Very fascinated by Taproot coming down the line as well. Yeah. And I totally agree with you about the risk. There's nothing, the asymmetric bet of my lifetime is Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. That's why I am not, I'm not 100%, but I'm more than 70% yeah. in that bank. But the rest is kind of like speculative uh, investments. So that's super interesting. So on that note, so what do you believe as we go up to say $12.5 million, it goes back to risk and my background is financial risk management. What do you believe is the biggest risk in Bitcoin's ascendancy to 12 million over the next decade? Would that be CBDCs or governments or yeah, so, quantum computing? Um, you know, I categorize this into two compartments. So one is the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns the known unknowns are i think predominantly the state response if bitcoin succeeds as uh, we contemplate it succeeding it is the ultimate enemy of the state if you will right this is the separation of money and state this is an event unparalleled in history we've never had a technology that could uh, as Hayek put it, be the sly roundabout way that that governments could not coerce or control. So should it continue to su- succeed, it's going to hit a threshold, I don't know, 5 trillion, 10 trillion a market cap, where it starts being taken seriously as an existential threat. Um, I do believe that the incentives related to Bitcoin will actually cause central banks, nation states, sovereign sovereign wealth funds to adopt it and buy it. But there could be a period, again, due to this information asymmetry, where maybe there's a few governments that think they can squash it or attack it or outlaw it or something. Uh, I don't think that fight will be won by any state. Um, And I think every state that chooses to be antagonistic towards Bitcoin is actually just creating incentives for other states to be accommodative. Hmm. Um, But that's the big known unknown. So that's coming. I don't know, you know, don't know what it looks like necessarily. Probably going to be more like predatory taxation. You know, we've heard these rumors of taxing unrealized capital gains recently, which is completely asinine. Hmm. Um, And my big message here to people is just like, 
you cannot take for granted the stability we have had historically. We are in totally transformational times. Like this is, this is equivalent to the transition from the agricultural age into the industrial age, is yeah. this shift from the industrial age into the digital age. So you need to question everything to first principles. Uh, you need to establish very secure philosophical anchorings to reality to deal with what's coming. Uh, this is no joke, you know. <laughs> so that's known unknowns. And then unknown unknowns, I would say, I can't even talk about. They're black swans, right? Yep. The protocol could have some debilitating failure that nobody could foresee. There could be some cosmological or natural disaster that wiped out electronics or something to that effect. So yeah, you mentioned something going from the agricultural age, the industrial age to the I can't remember the exact words, but that takes digital, yeah. digital, but even before that, uh, you remember the Henry Ford quote, basically turning money into energy. Oh yeah. Standard value for the system was a certain amount of energy exerted for every one hour to equal to $1. But I can't remember his exact wordings, yes. but he basically over a hundred years ago envisioned Bitcoin. Yes. And you talk about when you talk about your, known unknowns, it takes me back to, even if you look at a state by state, like the US, you have states like New York that are just burying their head in the sand mm -hmm. because they have to preserve their core financial services industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you got states like Texas that are just going whole hog, <laughs> Wyoming, straight Incentives. in. Yeah. Right, how much excess energy does Texas have yeah. to monetize into Bitcoin? Versus Flare gas, solar, yeah. wind, they got it all, yeah. Exactly, versus the business model, the incumbent business model, financial services under threat in New York. So they're enforcing things like bit license or whatever. The, yeah. That's the dynamic that will play out. Yep. It's uh, fascinating. So, okay. Now, um, in the context, before we jump into the model time, which I'm really excited about, I hope it doesn't blow up on us. Um, if you have you ever modeled things out like what what the world would look like in terms of the cost of a loaf of bread in u.s mm -hmm. dollar terms if bitcoin's at 12 and a half million dollars or an ounce of gold or any of that have you done that have, type of modeling as well i have maybe it'll be helpful here if i walk you through a bit of this thesis because i think it'll frame up the model nicely too so i think the u.s is in 2021 on equivalent monetary footing to france in 1791 I'll try to go through time. Yeah, I'll try <laughs> to go through this a little bit quickly, but I, I've studied a number of fiat currency inflations, and I think this one was useful in that it's somewhat recent in the scope of, of world history, and it also, the rates of change um, are, are pretty on par with where we are today, so I'll try to explain. In 1791, uh, France had been expanding its money supply 300%. Uh, in the years leading up to 1791. And then it began expanding its money supply 18% per year in 1792. So, and this was the whole assignment craze and whatnot. There's a great book on this called Fiat Currency Inflation in France, if people are interested. Uh, so 18% per year is their money supply expansion rate. I could say that's conservative, conservatively where we are today, uh, but the reality is, it's more like 40% per year right now yeah. in the wake of COVID. Now, a lot of people will argue and say, oh, that was just a special circumstances. It will come back down. Maybe they're right, but it's well north of 18% per year. And it was 7% per year 
prior to COVID. In 1794, France had another economic crisis. They had to double their money supply issuance rate to 35%. And then a year later, they had to double it again. I'm sorry, they quadrupled it to 145%. So the, the, the law at work here is the law of rating issuance and depreciation. So the more credit money you put into the system, the more future demand you're creating for dollars, right? It's fiat currency induces indebtedness and indebtedness requires more money to satisfy the debt. So you get into this debt spiral when fiat currency inflation hits a certain rate. And so in the US today, from 2001 to 2020, we've expanded the money supply 250%. We're currently, we're currently expanding the money supply, like I said, conservatively around 18% a year. I think we have to double that again, following the next crisis, which I have it in 2024, but I agree with you, could be sooner, more like a stagflation coming in 2022, 2023. And then I think by 2030, we'll have another crisis that will force us to quadruple it to 145%. So I think that's kind of the spectrum where the US aligns with, with France. Uh -huh. uh, and so what, th what this means, by 2031, the US M2 will have expanded to greater than $500 trillion. Uh, this is roughly 25X in 10 years. Um, I think during this time, a lot of weaker international currencies will collapse into the dollar, but they'll also be collapsing into Bitcoin. As fiat currencies fail, people are going to dollarize or they're going to Bitcoinize. So global M2, according to my target, by 2031 is $1,250 trillion. That's $1.25 quadrillion, which is 12x what it is today. So if Bitcoin is 20% of global purchasing power at that point, that implies that Bitcoin's market cap in 2031 will be $250 trillion in nominal dollars. But if we adjust that for 20... Uh, 2021 dollars, that's only a $20 trillion market cap for Bitcoin. So this would imply a Bitcoin price in nominal dollars of 12.5 million per coin. But in today's purchasing power, that would only be equivalent to $1 million in today's purchasing power. Well, this is uh, the most unbelievable segue. So as you may know, I'm a model guy. I model everything I can get my hands on. And I try to back into a model when I try and figure out exactly how much Bitcoin will be worth when it goes up. So can you see my spreadsheet? Yeah, yes. Okay. So uh, let me try and explain this. Actually, yeah, I put together a little deck for the viewers as well. So first of all, uh, let's play with numbers. Uh -huh. uh, so there's only this very, very basic model, but I have a couple of parameters in here that can be modified and you and I can play with these live. We have our, first of all, the money printing acceleration rate, which is, this almost sounds so contrived the way you laid out the French model. What was it 18%, 34%, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So I have that, but it's not in chunks. It's it's not discrete. It's yep. linear, so we we can't tweak that right now. Then I have the printing, uh, money printing expansion rate parameter. We can play with you know the history of seven percent or twenty five percent or forty percent. I think 
some of those numbers are very easily uh, justified. Then I have a concept I call this purchasing power, which is the debasement expansion. So if you add 100% of money, you get 60% of that back in inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't get it all because of the Cantillon effect and the delays, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Then I have two things just so we can, so people can wrap their heads around what we're talking about. That's not a loaf of bread or a piece of gold. It's a million dollar home mm -hmm. and a $60,000 Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's jump into uh, the models themselves and play with them. So this one is what I call my base case. This takes us up to my bear case for Bitcoin in nominal dollar terms in the year 2030 of 846. But it's interesting because the further we go, the more hockey stick we get, mm -hmm. obviously, because of the compound effect of things. So with this, I assume the money printing expansion rate is only 12%. You said it's historically 7% over the last 20 years? That's right. So 12%, that takes into account, you know, there's no way they can go from 40% in 18 months and taper it back down to 12%. That's typically never goes down. Yeah. Now people argue that 2020 was an exception that it will go down. Sure. But it was 40% in 2020. Yeah. yeah. They'll, they'll never be able to go under that as far as I'm concerned. Um, then you have the accelerating parameter. This kicks in in 2024 onwards. So that 12% per year gets accelerated by a factor of 1.1 every year up to 2031. Then the purchasing power debasement, 60%. We can play with the 60%. We can modify it up. We can call it 70%, but I think 60% is very conservative. Mm -hmm. So you can see that based on this money supply expansion, $100 today will be worth $47 in the year 2031, mm -hmm. less than half, which is also very conservative. And if you look at the price of apples or blueberries in the store today, you can see they've doubled in a year. Yep. Then you have the value of a million dollars of cash. This will go to back to the 47 and be $473,000. And this is very important. One of the things we try and get across in this channel is, you know, to achieve financial freedom, you can't make financial mistakes. And a lot of people on the cusp of retirement, they're signing, you know, $300,000, $500,000, 3% annuities, which is not enough to survive on based on this money expansion and inflation that we're going to see. Then we have the uh, home nominal expansion rate, which is 4.8%, which is 40% of the expansion rate, 12%. Mm -hmm. So it's less than the inflation rate. So we're seeing that today. We're seeing inflation, as far as I'm concerned, way north of 15%, 20%. And home inflation on average has been 20% year over year, but it's also a very special circumstance. And then Bitcoin. This number here is very important. I assume super conservatively, the compound annual growth rate over the next 10 years of 33%. And that'll take us to $1.1 million nominal terms, which are worth 533 in purchasing power terms in 2031. Mm -hmm. That's the base model. And there's some charts here, log chart and otherwise, just so people can wrap their heads around what's going on. This is my expected case scenario. I expect, again, conservatively, the 10% acceleration, 15% expansion, which translates to 9% debasement, super conservative. Your million-dollar home will be worth $1.79 million in nominal terms, but only $697 in real terms, which yeah. people sometimes get fooled by to say, oh, my house is now worth a million bucks. It's not. And your no, Bitcoin will go to $1.4 million, or my target is $1 million by 2030. 
but that's really only worth $442,000. Yep. Now let's go play with your model. This is kind of what I'm trying to back into and see if you and I can agree. And if we are, we're 10 years ahead of our time. We'll be able to say, well, <laughs> <laughs> so, this is, so this, this is very entertaining for me. Um, so let's say we have the uh, money. And we, let me know if you want to tweak any of these numbers. Uh, we have the M2 expansion rate, 35%. Mm-hmm. Would you like to take that down, take it up? No, I, th- I mean, this is actually what it is today. And historically, yep. it does not contract. Okay. And then the 10% acceleration, that's conservative. Yeah. The- what you said earlier is correct, that this model presumes it is continuous. Uh, my model thinks, well, it conceives of it coming in discrete chunks because the money supply expansion rate is increased when there's an economic shock. Mm. So I think it's fine for now. Um, so you, you had numbers on your total M2 money supply. So it goes from 20.79 trillion and in this model up to 985 trillion, call yeah. it a quadrillion. That was way lower than yours, wasn't it? Uh, no, I think my, my global M2 was 1.25 okay. quadrillion. So it was about 25% higher than that. But I'm not sure, was this... This uh, is only US, US. M2 or global? Only US M2. Okay. So we can, and the, we basically double it for the world. Yes. World well, the thing is though, that the US dollar becomes a higher proportion of global M2 during this transition as well, because you have weaker international currencies f- failing and yep. they dollarize. Okay. Yep. So we probably need to tweak that for the global world. But then the uh, debasement being 60% of the 35% goes to 21%. That's basically everybody year inflation rate. And we are seeing that. And we're seeing a lot higher than that in rents, in lumber, in coffee. And next year, it's going to be bad too, because the supply chain problems we are facing right now, every time there's a boat stuck at a port, price goes up. That's right. And there's a hundred of them off of Long Beach right now. Um, then we have the home appreciation. So your million dollar home will go to $3.7 million, but that's only worth 351K in real terms. And I, this is the shocker that people this, yes. have to this wrap This is the, the illusion. This is yeah. the illusion. This is the central bank computer virus that is installed in all of our minds when we think through dollars, right? You would look at this in nominal terms and think you were doing exceedingly well. Your million dollar home has become $3.7 million. But I guarantee you that the world around you will reflect this decimation in purchasing power, right? So you think that your your actual you've actually lost sixty five percent of the value in your home in real terms. You'll see that reflected in price increases in everything else. Exactly. And then to back into your twelve and a half million dollars, I didn't get quite right, but that's approximately a nominal appreciation of Bitcoin of sixty nine point five percent takes us to twelve and a half million dollars. And the real value in purchasing power terms is 1.169. What was your 2031 target in real purchasing power terms? Uh, it was 12.5 and 1 million. I should say that the numbers I used in that particular demonstration were rounded off. So this might be right on. Okay. Yep. So are we saying we agree? This model, <laughs> yes, appears to reflect um, what the way I had looked at it before. Um, the only other thing I would add here is that, again, we have this smooth presumption in the money printing acceleration rate yeah. that doesn't happen continuously. The other thing I would add is that 
as this process unfolds, people are going to continually witness fiat currencies being decimated in their local economy. And I think that once one country or one, any, it doesn't have to be a, an entire country, any economic cohort that moves to Bitcoin and benefits as a result of that transition, right? Say they're selling out of their Venezuelan Boulevard and getting into Bitcoin, and then they're benefiting over the next 10 years, they're setting a precedent and example for other economic cohorts to follow. Mm -hmm. So that's the, and you can't hide that. So governments historically have been able to hide this as, you know, all fiat currencies are being debased in concert. So it's really hard to see which one is that they're all getting worse, right? We think you're just denominating everything in dollars. There's no, there's no truthful barometer for the debasement of fiat currency. Gold was supposed to be that, but as we've touched on earlier, it's heavily suppressed in the derivatives markets. You can think of Bitcoin as like an irrepressible barometer for the debasement of fiat currency. I think this is going to be a pretty shining evident um, example of what's really going on in the world. As you see the Bitcoin price rocketing up amid all this economic chaos, people are going to wise up to what is money? How am I getting screwed, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And the other thing that people don't realize is how scarce this is. I always say there'll never be more That's than right. 14 million Bitcoin. And the big money is just arriving. The pensions right. are just arriving. The sovereigns haven't even begun yet. I mean, it is uh, <laughs> That's right. a lot of asymmetry here for yeah. sure. Okay, this is awesome. You know what we should do is I'll kick the model over to you. Maybe we'll expand it for global money supply, Please. make it a little more sophisticated. We talk about the fold-ins and movement from other currencies, et cetera. Maybe we can add those staggered steps like we had yep. in France in the 1700s. And you asked earlier, uh, in my model, I had at the end of the 2031, gold being worth about $29,000 per ounce. 29,000, okay. And a loaf of bread about $40, where it's oh. $2.50 $2 today. I'm gonna write that, go, great, that's awesome. Okay, so let's get back. Now we're going to go through what I call the quick fire round, hopefully. Uh, and. Otherwise, we'll be here for the next 24 hours chatting about stuff. <laughs> so let's talk a quick fire round. This will be real easy ones. And I'm going to hit you hard. So you ready? Ready. Okay. So what's your take on the plan B stock to flow model and his cross asset model? Do you believe? Not believe. Or do you believe they'll break down once fiat goes down? Uh, all models are wrong. Some are useful. Most are dangerous. So I think it's interesting how closely it has it has adhered historically but i would not expect it to adhere forever awesome okay is there a danger and this is probably a large part of my concern and what kind of keeps me awake at night because we want to give back and make the world a better place but do you believe there's a danger that bitcoin could destabilize society into a new world, what I call the haves and the have-nots you look at the two and a half percent that have adopted bitcoin mm. they're going to be set the 97.5% that haven't, they're going to be stuck under the tyranny of fiat, paying taxes, et cetera. How do you see that shaking out? And you think that could be a problem? Well, we're already there. There's already a, a significant cohort of the haves versus the have-nots. Um, that divergence in this, this wealth disparity is created through central banking and fiat currency, or we would say exacerbated at least, by the way, a 
um, unequal distribution of wealth is a normal outcome of capitalism, right? We're all different, we all have different skills, luck, know-how, all the things. But central banking exacerbates it. It's actually, it's anti-Robinhood, right? We're stealing from the poor and the those living on fixed income and reallocating that to, to asset owners. Um, so I would expect that the faster Bitcoin monetizes, the more disproportionate the resultant wealth hierarchy is. The slower it monetizes, the more equally distributed Bitcoin's becoming over time. So I think it's definitely a function of, of how fast it monetizes. But the last piece that's really important is that even if it monetizes very quickly and the wealth distribution globally is very uh, divergent, those with wealth will not have a mechanism to prey on those that don't as they do today. Bitcoin changes the incentive structure inherent to human action where it's really hard. You can't inflate it really hard to tax, really hard to steal in general. So it's going to reorient human action towards long-term fruitful and productive relationships. Yeah. Um, and it's also definancing the war machine, right? Central banks print money to go to war. This is how World War I and World War II happened because the fiat currency spigot gives government a virtually limitless source of resources to wage war beyond the confines of their own balance sheet which historically on a gold standard, like you go to war, war is very expensive. Someone gets on rough economic footing, they cut a deal, there's peace, there's armistice. Hmm. With fiat currency, we've expanded the scope and duration of war in a way that's never, never before been possible. So I think Bitcoin fixes that as well, which is really good for, for everyone. So speaking of that, uh, do you believe, and I'm hoping, I do believe, that Bitcoin will give many people a chance who wouldn't otherwise have a chance or being born into riches, et cetera. Like the a, there's, a, there's a joke right now in Bitcoin circles that Bitcoin's an IQ test, right? Like those that do the homework and understand uh, the first principles of money are the first to sit down at the table. They benefit disproportionately to later adopters. Are you saying it's Darwinian? Like everything, it is Darwinian. Okay. But in this but case, there's no, the element of corruption has been removed, right? It's, it's, if you could think of the central bank as a predatory institution and it's preying on people's ignorance of money or their passivity in relation to money, uh, Bitcoin is an incorruptible institution. So yes, it's Darwinian in the sense that if you adopt early when no one, what did sailors say that if you wait till everyone understands it, you won't be able to afford it. So if you buy, if you do the work to understand it in advance of other people, you're going to benefit, right? As it monetizes. But the net outcome is that that institution will, the rules of that institution will not be able to be bent, twisted, or broken to disfavor everyone in favor of a few. So do you think um, net net though, the world will be a better place with Bitcoin less wars, more even distribution of wealth, more philanthropic, more people more, giving back. More wealth creation, flat out. We have to keep in mind that trade, uninhibited free exchange is how we create wealth. It's the only way we create wealth. Government does not create wealth. Government is in the business of taking. Markets are in the business of making, right? It's a positive sum game. We create more capital than we could acting in isolation. 
through free exchange. The big inhibitory force on free exchange today is government coercion. So you could think of, of Bitcoin as a new economic paradigm that is highly resistant to coercion. So the net outcome will be much more wealth creation. I think global GDP goes from, call it $100 trillion in today's dollars to something more like, uh, like a 10x, you know, like a quadrillion dollars in today's dollars, which could be, as we touched on, multiple quadrillions in 2031 dollars. Exactly. So I'm, I'm personally fascinated by game theory and Bitcoin mm -hmm. is game theory. Uh, yes. Thinking three to six years ahead and also from my chess background, think about the chess moves to come. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen? Petro Bitcoin, as I call it, which is denomination of energy and Bitcoin, may, more major sovereigns, like major sovereigns jumping on board, like the Brazils of the world or the Argentinas, mm -hmm. uh, central bank digital currency wars, driving everybody towards Bitcoin, uh, what do you see happening over the next three to six years? Yeah, so the first order game theory for the state is to demonize Bitcoin, uh, illegalize it, propagate misinformation, just try to cloud people's perception uh, about the reality of money, central banking, Bitcoin. Uh, their second incentive would be to expand the money supply and acquire Bitcoin quietly. Um, again, you don't want to announce your intentions that you're acquiring this asset because that would that would trigger game theory among other sovereign actors. So the real we have, the we, have we have Bulgaria doing that now, we have Iran doing that now, we have yes. Kazakhstan, etc., Russia. They're yes. all doing it quietly. And this is that's what we know about, right? Yeah. I think there's even layers below that uh, in terms of quietness. Hmm. Uh, when the news does break, though, as it inevitably will will. And at some point, by the way, once they've built their position, a sovereign actor, their incentive then becomes to announce, right? Because then you want to trigger this reverse bank run where other sovereign actors are trying to sit down at the table. And so there's a, in game theory terms, the Nash equilibrium, which is the game state where no player has an incentive to deviate from their chosen strategy after anticipating the decisions of others. The Nash equilibrium of money historically was gold, right? It's like, it's the one money that no one else can change. And that's why it's still prime geopolitical money today. You know, for instance, China is the biggest producer and buyer of gold in the world. Gold still makes the world go round today. The Nash equilibrium of fiat currency though, is worthlessness, right? This is the race to debase. Every country wants to debase their currency to fund their political aims, but not too quick. You know, they don't want to, tick any other country off, but every country is engaging in it. The Nash equilibrium of Bitcoin is global money, frankly, because it's there's uh, a race to hold, a race to save in this money. Uh, so, and this is a, we're revisiting Gresham's law, which I'm sure you've heard of before, where there's yes. a, the incentive to spend and borrow the softer money or fiat currency and to buy and save in the hardest money you can get your hands on, which is Bitcoin. So in game theory terms, I think the shelling point of 21st century money is sell fiat by Bitcoin, right? You want to sell and borrow all the fiat you can, as we see a lot of brilliant macroeconomic strategists doing today, and buy all the Bitcoin they can. So how does that play into China, for example? China, obviously big lender to the US you could construe, but they are spending like there's no tomorrow. They are probably printing like there's no tomorrow. They are buying up ports and 
roads and infrastructure all around the world and Southeast Asia and Africa and everything else. How does that play into this game theory? Well, you can think of all the ports and infrastructure and assets they're buying as a form of hard money too, right? They're, yeah. they're expanding their money supply. They're acquiring gold, producing gold, and they're building infrastructure. Um, they're, they're a state on the rise. So they're trying to expand their dominion in the world, but they're doing that aggressively and exclusively through fiat currency debasement. Yeah, cool. And I throw you a curveball here, a little bit of a fun question as we get towards the end. Your thoughts on Bitcoin maximalism? Like some yeah. people you see that as a negative term. Yeah, so this is, I've done a bit of a study on this. I've written about it. I think that all cultures exhibit this cultural immune system. But I think the cultural immune system itself takes on the characteristics of whatever institution it's preserving. And it just so happens with Bitcoin, the culture that's been built up around it, it's, it's being centered on this obstinate, incorruptible, unchangeable money. So the people that have you know, self-ascribed themselves as toxic Bitcoin maximalists, they tend to exhibit these properties as well. They become very obstinate, very, you know, can't change my mind, very hard-headed. And I think that Bitcoin toxicity was actually an invaluable cultural dynamic early on, right? For Bitcoin to sprout or get out of the ground, it needed to be very scrappy, very aggressive, very resistant to bad ideas. Cypherpunks. Very cypher. Yeah, just, yeah. Um, you know, like PayPal mafia type guy where they were just very hard-headed about getting this business out of the ground. We'll take that times 10 for, for Bitcoin maximalism mm -hmm. or 100. So, but I do also think that as Bitcoin continues to succeed, it is essentially just an internet protocol. So in the same way that HTTP and TCP IP ossified to be standards, they're global standards, right? No one's fighting about that today. So I think if Bitcoin standardized and ossifies as a global economic internet protocol, that Bitcoin toxicity will have been, will become less relevant over time. No one's going to be, you know, we don't have TCP IP maximalists running around the world today. Like, you know, TCP IP or have fun staying poor, bro. Like that's just, that goes away over time. Yeah. So I think it's a very necessary cultural phenomenon early on for some to bootstrap something into global monetization, but I think it loses relevance as it grows. And tied into that as well, I'm a very big believer in optimal asset allocation. I think it's a very, very important discipline to have. And other than Bitcoin and real estate, for the people out there, for the viewers, what assets other than that would you think they should invest in to protect themselves from further debasement, apart from the obvious gold, if there is one? Uh, specifically to protect themselves from debasement? I think that's it. I mean, I would also say... I think betting on, I like self-sufficiency in general, the idea of having, you know, backup food, water, weapons, housing, transportation, all of these things are very important. Um, I personally will invest in some private companies, typically early stage private deals. I think some of those can succeed that can outpace inflation. But I don't see a lot of broader investment categories that will do that. Um, there, there could be an argument made here for automation. 
-hmm. and that inflation is going to really destroy people's real wages. So this is going to put additional pressure, say trucking, for instance. Yeah. Uh, truckers are going to get really hurt in the next 10 years of all this monetary manipulation. So this could create additional demand for trucking automation. So maybe, you know, you, I guess you could insert Tesla or, or other investments here. Um, but yeah, we're, it's the shift to the digital age. So I think holding Bitcoin is the best performing asset you're probably ever going to see in your life uh, at a certain point of its monetization, whether that's 2030 or 2035 or, or later, you'll probably get another uh, at bat, so to speak. And in investing in some of these next wave companies of the digital age, um, because the other thing about Bitcoin is I think it's going to cause us, cause the, cause a resurgence in value investing. Right today, value investing has been largely decimated through fiat currency manipulation. You can't make sense of price signals. PE ratios are astronomical. Like things don't yeah. make sense. That's true. When you get back on an honest money, hard money standard, value investing will come back in a real way. So I expect to see that um, towards the tail end of of Bitcoin's monetization, which I think is like 2035, 2040. Going to throw you a. One that always perplexes me, and it's hard for me to figure out, <laughs> maybe I'm just too deep, but imagine we went back, the US went back to the gold standard pre-1971. What would happen to the price of Bitcoin? I think the inevitable end game of gold, trying to scale gold as money, which is ultimately what currency is, the inevitable end game of that is fiat. Because you're putting too much, you're concentrating too much power in too few hands. And that power itself, as Lord Acton said, it corrupts. Absolutely. I don't think you can scale gold. I think gold has failed. It's failed multiple times. We've tried to scale its transactability through currency. Currency always ends in fiat currency. Fiat currency ends in war, corruption, civilizational collapse. So the U.S. can try to repeg to gold. I don't think it'll work. And... If anything, by that point, it could further reinforce the investment thesis for Bitcoin if Bitcoin is accurately perceived as a digital disruptor to gold. So I think all roads lead to Bitcoin. <laughs> That's what I always say as well. That's brilliant. <laughs> we are uh, uncannily aligned, and I knew we would be. A huge thank you for the time you spent with me. We're going to end on a fun question that somebody asked me to ask you. A dear friend said, is it true you have a Bitcoin tattoo on your bicep <laughs> this is my only only tattoo actually that under is my, under my right arm the rumor is true wow it is true i got this tattoo in november 2018 bitcoin was worth sub four thousand dollars this was one year after launching my hedge fund so we had just been through a brutal bear market i had started writing and talking about bitcoin a lot and I guess I had finally accepted the fact that I was in Bitcoin for life at that point. Yeah. And to me, this tattoo symbolizes skin in the game, which I think that's the big deal here is that Bitcoin is reinstituting skin in the game for everyone in the world. It's holding people accountable for their actions. It's encouraging and, and incentivizing people to be hyper responsible. Yeah. And that's the problem with central banking and government is that you have decision makers divorced from the consequences of their decisions. 
that's what creates this socioeconomic rot and civilizational collapse. So I think by restoring this balance of incentives and disincentives and skin in the game that we can actually scaffold ourselves to a new and better mode of civilization. So the big message I got for the audience here, and hopefully they're all stuck to the bitter end and be surprised. Everybody watches my videos to the end. It's I don't know where people, <laughs> and if they don't have the time, they break it into chunks. So that's fair enough. But the big lesson here for everybody out there, uh, please do your research. Don't let Darwinian <laughs> situations get to you. You've yeah. got to become your own sovereign. You've got to educate yourself and take yes. the leap. Would yes. that be a fair summary? Very fair, very fair. And, you know, capitalism is nature. And this is a reemergence of capitalism, right? Yeah. Again, if you study this, the central bank is anti-capitalistic. Yeah. Um, and there's now, you know, like so many things that have been eaten or disrupted in the digital age, it's money's turn. And Bitcoin is that disruptor. Great. Well, Robert, thank you so much again. And again, I urge everybody, educate yourselves, subscribe to his channel, read all his material. Once you start, it's just the world looks completely different after it. So big thank you, sir, for all your time. Really appreciate it. 